0: Good afternoon, good evening, good morning, whatever time of day it is when you are tuning in. This is Kay Mortimer with Covenant Truth Ministries. And this is today's episode of our Passover Passion Series. As we continue looking at God's Word in this special series and see how Passover and all that is associated with it is so fulfilled in Jesus Christ and we see the elements of that coming to play in the life of Jesus in this final week of his ministry prior to the cross. And it's interesting that I did not realize this until today, but I was listening to uh, someone earlier yesterday and today, and they mentioned about this fact that In Matthew's Gospel, Matthew devotes about 25% of his writing to the final week of Jesus' ministry. Mark devotes 33% of his small book. Luke, 20% of his larger book. And John devotes 50% of his entire book to the final week of Jesus' life between the time that he rode into Jerusalem on the donkey on the 10th of Nisan to be the Passover lamb for the nation and for the world, all who would believe in him and receive him, and the 14th of Nisan and when he would be slain, and then, of course, his resurrection three days later. So this week is very significant in the scriptures. And then, of course, in the other books of the scriptures, there are many um, references to this week. There are many other teachings uh, from this through Paul and Peter and others. But the actual gospels themselves, all four of them devote quite a bit of time, though they have differing ideas in terms of their angles of what they're bringing about and why. And all of that's associated with the different gospel writers, what their purposes were in their book, etc. So I want to consider this topic today, pretensions. We're going to see how the probing and the inspecting that happened between the 10th of Nisan and the 14th of Nisan of every Passover lamb connects with the story and the life of Jesus Christ. For he truly was, we've already seen in a couple of these lessons, how he was operating as God's high priest, although not recognized by the world at that time as any high priest. Yet he was God's high priest. He is God's high priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek, we've Read about that, and and that can come to play in other lessons. We saw how, as the priest of God, he is inspecting his people and so forth, which drove him to cleansing the temple as Elkanah, the jealousy, his zeal for the, the Lord's house had eaten him up, so to speak. It had been aroused in him. Um, we saw how he cursed the fig tree and why. We looked at those lessons earlier. Now we're looking at how the others are challenging him and giving inspection, so to speak, to him. And we're going to see through this that he comes through with flying colors. He is the spotless, blemish-free Passover lamb of God that was given to take away the sins of the world. So let's look at that very quickly. Now he's going to be probed and challenged every single day of this week. And all three of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, speak more about this. John, he focuses a large portion of his time on another element that we will get to later. But the other three gospel writers bring in a lot of these various challenges most of them telling the, about the same challenges with very minor differences so let's look at those the first one i want to look at is found in luke's gospel in luke chapter 20 i want to read verses 1 and 2 now it happened on one of those days as, he, as on one of those days as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel that the chief priests and the scribes, together with the elders, confronted him and spoke to him, saying, Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who is he who gave you this authority? So here we go with one of the very first challenges that were given to him. And these came from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Jesus gives them a brilliant answer. We will see that all this week as we or all of these probings this week that we're reading about, we will see that as, the occur, as these occur day after day, Jesus is brilliant. He does not fall prey to their craftiness. They're trying to trick him. We're going to see that. So he comes back and he says, okay, well, let me ask you this question. The authority that John the Baptist had, John the Immerser had, he, where did that authority come from? Well, he's got them. He's got them in a trap because he knows that if they say this, they know that if they say this, they answer a certain way, then that won't work. And if they answer a different way, that won't work. So they they say, well, we don't know. And he says, well, neither will I tell you. And then he gives them a convicting parable. And all three of the gospel writers record some about this. This parable is drawn from Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. So you can read it there as well, and you will see that it matches perfectly with this parable. This is not so much a parable in the sense that it's a made-up story. It is real, and he is teaching them through this about the kingdom of heaven and what it's like. So he gives them this story about the vine dresser and about the vineyard and about how the the servants didn't take care of the vineyard. They didn't receive even the son when he was sent to him. Instead, they said, well, let's take him outside the vineyard and kill him because he's the heir. And so the whole thing is a convicting parable to them. And it says in verse 17 of Luke chapter 20, then he looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. And the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people, for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So they watched him And sent spies who pretended to be righteous that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the governor. So the very next thing they do is they say, "Okay, well, let's trick him in regard to taxes. You know, the Romans are over us and and the Romans want us to pay our taxes. And so maybe we can get him this way. So they ask him about paying taxes. Is it lawful? And he tells them, hand me a coin. And he says, you know, whose image is on this. He says, render to Caesar that which, is rend- that which is Caesar's, but render to God that which is God's. And it says then in verse 26, but they could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people. And they marveled at his answer and kept silent. So now we see another group of people come up to him and they try to challenge him. And they are the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees was another strict sect of the religious leaders there. And the Sadducees, they only received Moses' official Torah writings. They did not believe that the rest of the scriptures were inspired. They didn't receive the Psalms and the prophets. They didn't receive the writings. They didn't receive anything but Moses' writings. And they also did not believe in any life after death or resurrection. So it's very ironic they come telling him this story. Hey, this guy had a wife and Moses says that the brother, you know, if the if the man dies and he's childless, the brother needs to raise up children to him. That was true. That is the Leverite uh, law in the Torah in the book of Moses. So they're coming to him and they're bringing this challenge and then they go all the way down this, the line and they say the second husband, he didn't have children either and he died. Third husband, no children. He dies. Fourth and they go all the way down the line through seven of them. And then they say in the resurrection as if they truly believed there was such a thing. In the resurrection, whose wife is she going to be? And Jesus has to correct them and he says you got it all wrong. You don't understand. Marriages for people here in this earth, but in heaven it's not so. There's a difference in the afterlife. But I want you to notice this, because in his answer to them, he takes the very person that they admire and esteem highly, he takes Moses and he says this in verse 37, but even Moses showed in the burning bush... Passage that the dead are raised when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he, meaning God, is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. So he's telling them that there is a resurrection. And in that resurrection, there, there, God is the God of the living. Nobody just flat out dies and doesn't live again. Every single person will spend eternity somewhere. And the challenge and the question that we must all face in this life is where will that be? There's only two destinations, only two choices, and the decision is made before you breathe your last. And the only way to secure your destination in heaven and make sure your name is written in the Lamb's book of life is when you are born again of the Spirit of the living God, just like Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And that's another topic I have covered that in depth. If you would like to to check that out, I encourage you to do that. It is found in our Revelation Road series, in our Bema Seat series, And in our Thy Kingdom Come series, it's lesson six of that, where I've gone into great detail to explain being born again, the Lamb's Book of Life, and all of those aspects. That is how you will secure your destination. It's simply believing in Jesus Christ and the finished work He did on the cross, asking Him to forgive you for your sins as you confess them to Him, Repent of those sins and receive Him into your heart as Lord and Savior. And when you do that, He will write your name in the Lamb's book of life as well. And you will be able to live with the Father and with the Son and with the Holy Spirit. You will be able to live in heaven. You will be among those who God is reported to be the God of the living. He is the God of the living. And we will all live in eternity somewhere. In verse 39 here it says this, Then some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. But after that they dared not question him anymore. So then he asked them a question. He says, okay, why did David say that the Messiah is the son of David and and that the Messiah is Lord? And David yet calls him his Lord. He says in verse 42, now David himself said in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore David calls him Lord. How is he then his son? And so Jesus is pointing out that even though he is the son of David that he is Lord. He is truly the Lord. Alright? So now continuing on in Luke chapter 21 verses 1 through 4 we find Jesus observing people who are putting in their offerings in the temple treasury chests that were there. I think there were 13 trumpet uh, chests, if I'm not mistaken, and they would put their various offerings for their various things in there money-wise. And so here in the first few verses of Luke 21, Jesus is observing this. And he knows the difference between the pretentious offerings that are given from those that really, it doesn't cost them anything versus the one who gives out of everything she has. And it's just a little widow. And she gives two mites. And yet Jesus commends her and says she's given more than all of the others. Why? Because it's always been about the heart with God he sees the heart and you know even david when david bought the threshing floor of ornan or arona whichever way you want to pronounce it he bought that and that became the temple mount that solomon built the temple on it is the temple mount today it belongs to the jewish people it belongs to god and it's for his house and in the time that david bought that arona was going to give it to him And David said no. He said, I will not offer to the Lord that which cost me nothing. David understood the importance of offering to God something in a form of sacrifice, something that cost us something to do for him. And David was intending to offer that field as the Lord's possession. And that is found also in Leviticus. It talks about that, how when they would do that, what it was to be and how it was to be paid for and so forth. And so in David's mind, he's buying this field to offer it to the Lord. He's preparing for the Lord's house is what he's doing. And he's bought the field for it. David ends up preparing much of the other things that Solomon would then need to be able to build the Lord's house. And so David would not offer to the Lord that which cost him nothing. Jesus is commending this little widow. And I want to mention this because as I was reading through these passages again, I felt impressed that there may be someone who is listening that is like me many times. And we feel like, what, what little tiny thing do I have that I can offer that will make any difference at all? Sometimes we belittle the things that we can do because we feel like, what are they among the need of so many? What are they among the worthiness of God for so much more than I can offer Him? And yet I want you to be encouraged by this because Jesus was not looking at the amount. He was looking at the heart. He saw that this woman was sacrificing out of her heart Out of love for him and a desire to please the Lord and a desire to be in obedience to the Lord and a desire to give him everything. In these accounts Jesus commends her because he says she gave everything out her whole livelihood. She was offering it to the Lord out of her heart. And that's what touched the heart of God. As a matter of fact in one of the recordings in one of the Gospels it talks like, you know, Jesus is just watching the different ones put their monies in. And when she did that, he calls his disciples to him, And he says, I want you to look at this. This is an object lesson for you. I want you to understand, I'm looking at the heart. And this woman, she gave more than all the others because she gave from her heart. and That touched the heart of God. And it will do so today. So don't belittle the little things that you might can give to the Lord or do to the Lord. Be encouraged because if you have a heart of love for him and you are doing it unto him, he takes notice and it is special and precious to him and he will reward you. All right, then he moves on and he begins to give them what we call the Olivet Discourse. It's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke There are a few differences in Luke's version, but it is the the same that that I know of. It is the exact same um, otherwise. And it's prophetic about the end times. It's signs of the end. And if you study or hear about end time prophecy, much of the teachings and so forth will center from some of these elements in here. And the very first thing he tells them that all need to know is that we must watch out for deception. There will be great deception in the last days, and we see that happening already. He also uh, speaks about the fig tree and gives a fig tree prophecy. And it's interesting because if you'll remember, just a few days earlier, he had cursed the fig tree symbolically cursing the nation of Israel because they had rejected him. We looked at that a few, a few lessons ago, and we saw from Jeremiah 8 why he had to do that and what that meant, what that signified. And so now he's coming along now, and he is giving the promise that that cursing of the fig tree is not permanent. There will come a rebirth of the fig tree. There will come a res- restoration and a reblossoming and budding of the fig tree again. Praise be to God. Now, look at um, Luke chapter 21, verses 37 and 38. It says this, mm-hmm. And in the daytime he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and stayed on the mountain called Olivet, Then early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. So we see kind of a summary of this whole week here. Okay? Now if we look back at Matthew just to see these accounts from the other perspectives we find in Matthew chapter 21 this same challenge in verse 23 through 27 the same challenges in essence in some of the same order that we're looking at here, because they're all recording the same things that happen. They're just giving different insights about them, different perspectives. And so in verse 28 through 32, notice this. It says, here he gives them, he had given them whenever they challenged him by the chief priests and the scribes on his authority, and he had Given them the question back, okay, what about John the Baptist? Now here, Matthew records for us a little bit of something a little bit different. He gives us more of the details. Not only did he give him the parable of the vineyard, which Matthew records, but Matthew also records here. He says, but what do you think? Verse 28, a man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second and said likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said to him, the first. Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. So in other words, he's telling them through John's example, this idea through this story about the two sons to point out that they also needed to repent. The common people were receiving Jesus and were repenting, but the religious folks weren't. And so Jesus was trying to correct them and draw them to repentance as well. Then he goes on. He talks about the vineyard, and we've seen that one before. He goes on in Matthew chapter chapter 22. He talks about the parable of the wedding, how, you know, the the father was giving this wedding, and there's been all kinds of invitations, and he came and he said, Go to my servants and tell them there's going to be this grand wedding and invite them to come. And, you know, they were too busy. Notice this. In verse 3, it says... Uh, the end of verse 3, and they were not willing to come. Then go down to verse 5 and it says, but they made light of it and went their ways on to his own farm, one to his own farm and another to his business. And then it talks about how the rest of them seized the servants and, and mistreated them and killed them and all of that. And so then finally the father says, okay, They're not coming. They're refusing me. So go into the highways and the byways and tell anybody that'll come to come. I'm I'm opening it up. Come, my grace, I want you to come and be a part of my family and be a part of this wonderful wedding. Come to my celebration. Come and join me. And so they did. And lots of people came from the highways and the byways. Now this is exciting to us, to you and me, because guess what? We're some of those that have come from the highways and the byways because we heard about Jesus. We heard the good news. And we said, yes, Lord, we want to accept that. We accept you. We want to come. We want to obey you, Lord. And so we have come. Praise be to God. So that gives us excitement because we were some of those that he went out into the streets and found. And he's still doing that today. He will receive anyone that will come to him from anywhere in any place. And so I invite you today. Praise be to God. So we see he gets the taxes question again, the challenges. He gets the challenge from the Sadducees and the the whole resurrection question again. We see he gets the challenge also on the great commandments that were in the Torah in verse uh, 34 of chapter 23. It says this, So when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, t- testing him and saying, Now this lawyer is not like we would think of today. This is someone who was skilled in the law, in the Torah. And this person comes and asks him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? In other words, what's the greatest there are 613 of these things. What's the greatest? What's the one that you would say is the greatest? And so Jesus tells him. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind, and body, and strength, all of that. And then he says, and love your neighbor as yourself, which comes straight out of Leviticus chapter 19. And he says, these are the two greatest. And he says this in verse 40, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets so he clarifies that for them and establishes the two greatest commandments. And we find his answers, he, he is brilliant in all of his answers here. He is Lord and he is brilliant. And so now he begins to preach to them. And he talks about, he, he gives, as a matter of fact, chapter 23 is full of woes to against these religious leaders who are challenging him and refusing to accept him as the promised Messiah, even though he fits the bill to a T. He is the promised Messiah and they can take the scriptures from the Old Testament that they knew and should have believed and match them up to him. That was their day of visitation. That was the challenge that they had And they were failing in that. They refused to receive him. And so chapter 23 is full of a lot of woes about them. A lot of um, judgment proclaimed upon them. Why? He had said in other places that they they would receive greater condemnation. Why? Same reason that Moses couldn't enter the land. Because they were representatives of God in the eyes of the people, the common people. And they were not honoring God. They were not obeying him. They were not doing what they were called to do. And so therefore they would be held to a stricter judgment because God will always hold those who have influence over others through their teachings and so forth. He will hold them to a higher standard. It's a very serious thing with the Lord. And all of us that are called in any type of ministry to represent the Lord must be careful about that because it is very serious with the Lord. Then we find in Matthew chapter 24 and 25 again, we find these end time prophecy teachings that Jesus gave forth. Then we can roll over to Mark and we find the exact same um, things here in Mark's gospel. We see that right after he purged the threshing floor, cleansing the temple. If you'll remember, When he cleansed the temple, John the Baptist had also prophesied about him and said that he would purge, he would thoroughly purge his threshing floor. And so part of his cleansing of the temple was also a fulfillment of John's prophetic word. So now he's going back to the temple the the morning uh, from Bethany on the morning of about the 12th because it was the day after he had uh, cursed the fig tree, which would have happened on the morning of the 11th and the fig tree was dead. Peter notices it. And so Jesus takes this opportunity to teach them about prayer. And he focuses on two things. First of all, have faith when you pray. Believe and don't doubt. Believe that God is hearing you, that God will answer you. And then he says to make sure that your heart is pure when you pray. Make sure you're, you have forgiven all who need to be forgiven and that you do not hold anything in your heart against anybody because God doesn't forgive us and receive our prayers when we hold something against another. So then they challenge his authority, just like they have in all the other passages. The taxes again, the the Sadducees again, all of these are repeating those challenges. It's just Mark is recording it as well as the other two Gospels. He deals with the offerings again. Again, the pretentious offerings versus those that were from a sincere heart that the widow gave. Then in Mark chapter 13, we read about the um, Olivet Discourse. Again, this is Mark's version of that. Hallelujah. So the point of these pretensions and the point of these probings that were happening during this week is this. They showed us a couple of things that I want to end with right now. First of all, Jesus proved to be the perfect, spotless, sinless, blemish-free Lamb of God who was going to die and take away the sin of the world for all who would believe in Him. And because He was free of all blemishes, He was in fact qualified. All the inspections that were done only proved that he was qualified to die as the Passover lamb. That was the purpose of all of these challenges. They proved that he was the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. Second thing, he withstood all the challenges. And I love it because he did that in brilliance. He was brilliant in his answer. One of the things that Isaiah 9-6 said about him was that he would be the wonder of a counselor or wonderful counselor. He is the brilliant one. He was not able to be tricked or outwitted by their schemes and their craftiness. But he withstood all the challenges and proved to be Isaiah 9-6's brilliant, wonderful counselor. And the third thing, he knows the heart of every person. He knows your heart. He knows mine. He knows whether we are pretentious in our hearts or whether we are pure. And he taught us the pure in heart shall see God. We will be able to experience him and see the Lord with a pure heart. We must have a pure heart, free of pretensions, free of pretending, free of deceit and guile. Because it's always, always, always been about the heart with God. It's, it always has been, and it still is, and it always will be. He looks at the heart. He even said that to Samuel when Samuel was sent to choose the king of Israel. And he said, I don't look at what man looks at. I look at the heart. And I see that this little boy, this young shepherd boy, he's got a heart after me. That's who I want. And beloved friend, if you will have a heart after God, he wants you to. He wants you and he loves you. Oh, may you know him in that way with a pure and sincere heart, loving him and seeking him. He is the Passover lamb who will die later in this week that we are studying, who did die 2,000 years ago in your place and in my place. And he proved to be the spotless lamb. I pray that this has been a blessing to you and that you can join us again for future episodes of our Passover Passion God bless you today in Jesus' name.